try and make y'all comfortable. Oh, well, welcome back to the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. I'm Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, and this is the second part of the Toronto Q&A session uh, that we had at our seminar from Toronto. Hope you guys enjoy. Stay tuned to the end of the video. You can learn how to submit your own uh, form check or your own uh, set of questions for our upcoming training vlogs. Been a little too nice to y'all. Now I got a price for y'all. Snake eyes on dice for y'all. Shoulders on ice for y'all. Question is about high intensity interval training given the uh, uh, the amount of evidence on the benefits of high intensity interval training. Why did I pick? Uh, suggest low intensity steady state is an addition to my theoretical program for general strength conditioning. I think that if somebody is doing a substantial amount of anaerobic work with a barbell, it's all highly anaerobic, uh, and then they could benefit from a complementary inclusion of conditioning that is something different, which would be steady state cardio. The idea is that the person who is going to generate a good cardio-respiratory fitness response to barbell training, that is, they're going to achieve uh, the ability to sustain eight metabolic equivalents or have the VO2 max that's greater than 45, uh, that's commiserate with uh, decreased uh, risk of early mortality or increased morbidity. That's the kind of threshold for cardiovascular, uh, cardiovascular risk. Uh, that person is going to get it from barbell training. But the person who's not going to generate from barbell training needs something, a different type of stress to make that happen. And I think low intensity steady state is uh, going to be good there. And I think if we're talking about overall development of a human, just like I want you to be, be able to produce force, many different motor patterns at a higher level, and I want you to be able to sustain, you know, force production for a long period of time. If you need to do that, then I think making sure somebody has a decent aerobic base is a reasonable idea. So uh, further, I think having an aerobic base allows additional aerobic capacity to be generated, meaning that if someone only did high intensity interval training, their ability to do anaerobic work would improve. And maybe their aerobic work would improve a little bit too, especially if they were untrained prior to that. Uh, but getting good at doing anaerobic things gets you good at doing anaerobic things. And then the ability to uh, that may not improve your aerobic ability, may actually hurt it because you're not able to clear those products. So it's not just the lactate, but uh, yeah, I mean, so, so the easiest example is to talk about lactate and hydrogen ion uh, uh, production. So in anaerobic uh, conditioning, you're pumping out a lot of lactate, a lot of hydrogen ions. As you get better and better, if you did a bunch of sprints, for instance, you get better at doing sprints, get better at pumping out a lot of lactate, a lot of hydrogen ions as your sprint. Uh, uh, performance improve. The ability to clear that may not improve and sometimes gets worse in certain individuals who need some aerobic capacity to be developed. So ideally, if you had an anaerobic athlete, you'd want to improve your anaerobic ability, but you may also need to have some low-level training of their aerobic capacity as well so that they didn't actually get, get a little worse at that. So I think uh, including that's pretty useful fairly useful. Um, and the evidence as far as the uh, the effect of aerobic training on strength outcomes, uh, that if you don't introduce too much volume too quickly, sound familiar, uh, I think the time cap was 30 or 35 minutes, that if you didn't go over 30 minutes or 35 minutes, that there was really no effect. 
And then in fact, there's some, it has to be like 12 hours separated too. Yeah. If you separate it, then there's the interference effect is minimized. Although I, I would say the most important thing is getting the volume in, especially for somebody who's not necessarily concerned with their absolute performance in the immediate future on a one RM, five RM. Yeah. And ultimately, if it allows somebody to train with more volume, that's probably going to be good for other outcomes. So I don't have anything against high intensity interval training. And ideally, if I had somebody who was fairly well conditioned, had a decent base or was naturally at a high level of aerobic fitness or general fitness, then I would probably have them do one time per week of low intensity steady state, one time per week, high intensity interval training, and then resistance training quite a bit. That's assuming they have no endurance based sport that they're training for. So if I have a CrossFitter, if you put me in charge of a high-level CrossFitter, I probably wouldn't have them do hardly any actual like monostructural high-intensity interval training, like that is, that is bona fide hit, like 20, 30 seconds, 10 seconds, high-output stuff. I probably wouldn't have them do any of that. They're already doing that with their lift, weightlifting, strength training, and their metabolic conditioning. Almost all of that stuff's anaerobic. So they're already getting really, really good at that. The complementary sort of conditioning pieces would be monostructural and uh, low intensity steady state stuff. The moderate intensity steady state stuff is is best for improving your performance in moderate at at that same pace. So the that's the whole theory of polarized training, where basically low and slow is really good at developing this aerobic base, and then this really hard high intensity stuff is good at developing that hard high intensity stuff, whereas the stuff in the middle is best at performing things at that pace, but is also really, really stressful. Joel Friel is the guy, F-R-I-E-L. That sounds very familiar. That's the same thing with the strength training. That's why we think that 70 to 80% is kind of our money, our money range for strength development. That's our low and slow. And then periodic exposures to 90 to 95% are kind of high intensity stuff. And then 80 to 90% we feel like is really, really hard really, really stressful, but doesn't produce a commensurate increase in the adaptations that we're seeking, unless the adaptations that we're seeking are between 80 to 90%. So if you're going to go to a strength competition where a 5RM was being tested, guess what? You're going to do a lot of heavy sets of five in that 80 to you know 85% range. But if you're not doing that, I don't see the benefit of sacrificing those training resources to, to, to do that. If you want to read solid, more... Uh, solid tangent. I blacked out with heaven. All right, next question. <laughs> yeah, question is, uh, how does getting stronger prevent mortality from cancer? Uh, reduce, also, reduce mortality. All right, whatever. <laughs> prevent. Anyway. I mean, you can't prevent mortality. That's what I'm saying. Well, that's true. We're all going there. That's that, true. You can't prevent mortality. Yeah, all right, we're all going there. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, this hasn't been fully fleshed out. That being said, if we wanted to theorize... There is a significant component of, more, component of mortality from cancer that's due to this frailty syndrome that Austin talked about earlier. People losing a lot of muscle mass, losing a lot of weight, they become frail, they get some sort of infection they otherwise wouldn't have gotten if they had a more robust sort of uh, physiological reserve and subsequently pass secondary complications due to treatment. So if they're on a treatment that reduces their immune system, for instance, and they have a low physiological reserve, that's a recipe for disaster. Insert Molly Hatchett song. Uh, if you uh, have cancer and you are unable to perform your activities of daily life because due to the medications that you're on, you have a lot of muscular atrophy, wasting, etc., etc., then you need to be uh, institutionalized where you need help, and that's increased risk of infection. 
Whereas if you had a higher initial strength level, higher initial physiological reserve, that may not happen to you even if you did lose a little bit of muscle mass. I view strength training as contributing to your 401k on a regular basis. Like you don't think about it, it's annoying, people talk about it, you know, and you think that you're doing good every time you make a deposit, it's there when you need it. That's the way I view this as it relates to cancer. I don't think that there, uh, the other, only last thing I'll say is that when you strength train, part of the process of the remodeling repair uh, uh, of muscles secondary to the stress, you get a lot of uh, release of locally and systemically active hormones from the muscles themselves. They're called myokines. Just like there were adipokines, hormones released from the fat tissue itself, myokines are released from the muscle tissue, and there may be some uh, effect of myokines on the carcin uh, Cancer. cancer's process itself. That's what I would say. Cancer is, uh, most many cancers are, it's a chronic inflammatory state. Just like most chronic inflammatory states, uh, it induces anabolic resistance. Anabolically resistant, waste away. Wasting away comes with tons of complications. That's probably how I would summarize that sort of thing. Is that the TLDR? Sort of the TLDR of him. Of me? Yeah. As a human? <laughs> yeah. That's all I got. I do think it's important for people with cancer to train. And the question then would become, how do you train somebody with cancer? The same way that somebody I would train somebody without cancer, unless there are other extenuating circumstances. If they've got a pork that doesn't allow them to do certain exercises due to mechanical restriction, if they've had an amputation, if they've had a certain surgical procedure that doesn't allow them to do certain exercises, will you work around that? You can use machines. The strength training police aren't going to show up and say, machines? <laughs> if they have a port that doesn't allow them to get in the low bar back squat position, the low bar police aren't going to come around and say, high bar? <laughs> so I think that I would train them the same as I would train anybody else in their age-matched demographic until proven otherwise, or if there were extenuated circumstances. But I think strength training would be a good, good thing there. One of the other interesting things is that uh, candidacy for treatment for cancer, when the doctor consults with you and decides whether you are a good candidate for treatment or not, depends on your functional status, yeah, among other things. Right. Among other things. ECOG, yeah. So in addition to tumor markers and the receptors on your cancer cells and the, you know, the phenotype and the genotype of your cancer cell, all sorts of comp very complex stuff that happens in the hemonc world. Uh, if you have, if all that stuff looks great for treatment, but the person is already frail, they're low functional status, they're dependent, they can't take care of themselves at home, they usually don't offer treatment to those patients. I think we have a chemotherapy pharmacist here, right? Yeah, they yeah. Might, yeah they'll have to, they, they'll have, they might have to alter the treatment regimen. So those considerations come into play. And so that's another reason to strength train. So I mean, hopefully it doesn't happen to you, but so you're super strong and jacked and functional should you ever need to be treated for something because it can guide treatment decisions. The question is, are people who are on di uh, diabetic medications like metformin and or a statin, are they at any increased risk of tendinopathy or tendon rupture? Dr. Baraki, what say ye? The most, the most well-established risk factor for tendinopathy in terms of medications are going to be the quinolones, fluoroquinolone antibiotics. Ciprofloxacin. Cipro, like you may have heard of Cipro for UTIs, for example. That one is definite. Ciprofloxacin, levofloxacin, moxifloxacin. Avalox. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, corticosteroids like prednisone will increase your risk for tendinopathy. 
Yep. Um, the other, there are numerous other medicines that are not quite as well correlated, and there's lots of debate, and a lot of this stuff has has kind of some more observational data sets behind it. But quinolones, I try to avoid prescribing in general. Uh, but definitely to people to, who train, I don't prescribe them unless I have no other choice, which is pretty uncommon that they're going to come in with some bug that's resistant to everything but that. Uh, and prednisone, same deal, unless I have no other choice. I do have a few patients who have to be on prednisone for various reasons, autoimmune or some, some other thing. And I try to keep the dose as low as possible and treat for the shortest period of time I can. But those are the medicines to be aware of. Metformin, no substantial effect on tendon issues. Statins, no substantial effect yeah. on tendon Metformin, issues. you may get more jacked. Yeah. So that's deep. Yeah. yeah. Cool. The question is that it has been observed that people who rate uh, repetition, the same RPE will move that repetition, the last repetition at different speeds. Would we, do we think that is reliably sensitive enough to predict where somebody is on the athletic spectrum? Um, I don't know. I, my initial answer is probably not, but I have no good reason for that. Maybe. I, I, I do think that there are many inputs that go into how fast someone moves a rep including their level of how well-trained they are in that particular movement, what their emotional status is about that particular movement, the weight on the bar. Level of arousal. Yeah, how aroused they are. I don't mean that in the cool I, way. <laughs> I mean that in the how worked up they had to get for the set. Um, and then just their individual sort of uh, uh, training, a demonstration of training capacity at the time. So some people will move things very, very quickly. Other people won't. And I don't know if that reliably correlates to the athletic spectrum as we defined it. Maybe. And, and you could argue that, look, if somebody moves things really, really quickly all the time, their rate of force development is very, very high. And that might be true. Um, and so you can make the argument that they may be further on the right side than somebody who moves everything super, super slow. The best example I have is John Patrizzo. It, every set that he ever does, it appears in slow-mo. But that's just him. Just yeah, I think, we, I think we can probably both think of exceptions. I have a client who I trained who's a, who's a medical student, and he pulled 600 for a triple, weighing around 205 or 210 or something like that, and every rep was at 10. Uh, and it just looked slow as hell. And so that makes me question the fact that I can think of people who have achieved that level of strength performance in terms of the reliability of this. There may be a general trend. There may not be, but it also probably is going to be dependent on the outcome measure in terms of athleticism, right? So these, we're just talking about a heavy deadlift triple. Like, yeah, we all know 600 for triple is strong. Does that make him athletic? What does that mean? Well, that means I'm super athletic. Doesn't, yeah, right. Doesn't really, not true. you know, <laughs> it, it probably doesn't match the lay understanding of like super athlete. You know yeah. what I mean? Actually, um, but in terms of our little bubble of strength adaptation, um, I don't think that his bar speeds... I didn't train him any differently based on his bar speeds, how they looked when we started, and his deadlift was closer to 500 or something, whatever whatever the case was. Um, and so, yeah, he pulls super, super slow, but... I, I think bar velocity within an individual can be a, a fairly reliable predictor of volitional effort, and you can use that to augment your own personal rating of the exertion there. But to compare that inter-individual, like I think that's unreliable. Same, just like EMG. Yeah, so I, I don't think you can do that uh, reliably. Question is, uh, opinion on 
prolonged sitting as an independent risk factor for certain disease states, even in the presence of regular physical activity. Brock? I don't know if I have a lot of opinions on that. I think I've seen some of the at least lay public uh, media articles that you've talked about where they're like, even exercising an hour a couple times a week may not be enough to reverse the how your job is killing you and stuff like that. And I think a lot of it's couched in histrionic language and stuff like that. So I haven't necessarily assessed the, the, the evidence myself on that to have a very informed opinion. Um, I mean, I think, I think you have to ask the question from a practical standpoint, what do we do with that information? Do we tell people that they need to start training 24 seven or do we think that standing desks are going to be like the cure to all of society's ills? I think both of those sound unlikely, you know? Well, so I don't know. I know there's a study that standing for 10 minutes does improve insulin sensitivity Whereas walking didn't for ten not, minutes, not particularly patient centered. No, I no, I know. So. But what, what I'm getting, what I, and I know also that the folks in the National Weight Loss Control Registry tend to be active for sixty minutes uh, or more per day, and then watch the least amount of TV, have the least amount of screen time, compared to folks who are unsuccessful dieters. I think, I think you could make an argument that the lifestyle of those who are the most sedentary probably predisposes folks to certain negative health outcomes and they will end up sitting more. It's just like the people who stay in bed longer than eight hours tend to have worse health outcomes because if you're either more sick, depressed, or whatever, you stay in bed for a longer period of time. And then the other thing that I would say is that some of the exercise interventions are woefully inadequate to achieve the stated outcomes that we know we need to improve these things. Like they're not getting people to that eight metabolic equivalent threshold for cardiorespiratory fitness or they're not actually improving their strength. There was a 12-month study where they had women bench press every week for a year, and their improvement in the bench press was less than one kilo. <laughs> That's not a strength training program. I don't know what that is, but strength training program, it is not. And so I, I think that... I bet they were using RPE. They probably used an RPE. Essentially useless, essentially everyone. If you, I think if you have... Uh, when, it, when the data gets more robust, what I think what we're going to see is probably that when you don't have these goal-directed sort of training interventions that don't achieve a certain a threshold, that exercise is probably not that useful if we're looking at hard outcomes. And I'd probably be on board with that. Just doing something, I, I very often say, is not necessarily better than doing nothing if the something doesn't achieve this minimum threshold of that uh, uh, level that we need. So that's what I would say how are our En-ROADS in the medical community? Rocky? I think that uh, we got fortunate with the opportunities we had with UpToDate in terms of writing two articles for them and getting them published for the medical community. However, we cannot force anyone to read it or put that stuff into practice. Speak for yourself. Uh, <laughs> so, so that was cool. Um, however, I think that um, most of my... Most of my experience in terms of making inroads has just been through personal interaction with my colleagues who then, either through direct conversation or from hearing from my other colleagues about me and what I do, start to ask me and then we talk about it and I show them some of the stuff and, and then I kind of work on them from that standpoint. Um, I think that our goal in the long run, particularly as he said earlier, once we can get our seminar or products approved for things like continuing uh, education credits for them, so we would incentivize uh, professionals like a bunch of the professionals that we have in the audience today to come in order to meet their professional society guidelines and requirements that they would learn more about it and then would have the resources to go and spread this stuff further and kind of start more of a, you know, a 
ripple effect or whatever across the population. Oh, I, I thought you said something else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so I think that's the goal. Mine, so, so to summarize, mine so far has been within my local kind of community, and then basically uh, whatever doctors there are also on Instagram who have come across me, and they shoot me messages actually frequently saying, you know, I'm a doctor here, and I see your stuff, and keep, you know, whatever. Thanks for thanks for the information and stuff like that. So those are kind of the, the places where I have directly observed some of this influence happening. But I think the more content we get out there and particularly link it to the education stuff and incentivize it, then it'll probably grow quicker. Yeah, I think our biggest influence so far has been in like PTs, massage therapists, chiropractors, personal trainers. That's probably been our biggest footprint so far. Getting into with more doctors. Yes, the up to date thing, super helpful. Although not gives, a, gives us some credibility to 100%. initiate that conversation too. Yeah, and then also medical students. The there's been an, just an outpouring of people who are in somewhere in their medical education who want to be involved with what we're doing or who are trying to uh, associate with us and just trying to to learn more, which is super yeah, super awesome. encouraging. I think we're going to need a bump to get to make a big impact with people who are already out there in the clinic. I do think that, yeah, more content, widening our audience just in general will make more people aware of what we're doing. But that bump, if it's going to happen within our lifetime, is going to be outside of our organization. So, for instance, we're going to this CrossFit Level 1 MD thing. Now, I have low expectations, not because it's CrossFit, not because it's a Level 1 thing, just because nobody else has gone to one of these things and then at the on the flip side of uh, on the other end of their experience, I said, yep, and now I'm the, uh, you know, a consultant for CrossFit and we're helping them, you know, move them in this direction. It's not, not happened before, but I'm hopeful that their audience gets exposed to us and then, our, you know, our exposure. Uh, no, so this is like an invitational kind of deal. Uh, and so the idea would be that we get to meet other docs and then they say, oh, Barbell Medicine, I've heard of that. I've never checked, I'll check your guys' stuff out. So that's just peer-to-peer. But then if let's it, just imagine if CrossFit HQ from the top said, you guys are the real deal. We want to you know, have you guys consult for us and have you out there on our huge public platform. Well, that would be a big step in the right direction for not only the audience that we already have and the groups that we're already affecting, but for other doctors. I mean, if they've got two doctors per affiliate, and then they've got 30,000 affiliates in the United States, something like that. That's a big number. Also, their platform just in general is exponentially greater than, than ours. So that would be a huge thing. I mean, why do you guys think I went on TV? I mean, yeah. Well, the idea is that if we can expose folks to barbell medicine, you know, a huge, you know, huge people at the amount of time, some of them are going to be doctors. And then maybe they end up Googling us. and Maybe they don't get offended, you know, with my deadlift face. And then once we've made it past all those barriers, then I, I think uh, we'll have done better. But I, I do think that we're going to need some help from the outside to get this to get to a critical mass where I think it's going to be potentially uh, revolutionary, even though I think right, right now what we're doing, what you guys are a part of, is benefiting society. But in order to make this huge, huge change, I think it's going to need an outside push. So... I'm super pumped that you guys all came. I'm super pumped that you guys are all very familiar with our material. Nobody came in here and said, yeah, I just heard there was like a barbell medicine seminar. I like barbells. I like medicine. Here, I'm at the seminar. <laughs> well, 
So nobody's here, everybody here is keyed in, right? So that's super encouraging to, to me. So it means I think we're, we're doing some good. And I, I, again, I do think the net benefit on society that we're making so far is net good. But in order to make this thing more than, uh, hey, do you guys know about barbell, barbell medicine? No, well, you can check them out and just kind of like a, you know, a sideshow type deal, make it more revolutionary, then I think it's going to need an outside push. And I don't care if my face is on the thing when it's doing good widespread, but I want it to do well across across different communities worldwide. That's what I'd like to do. Yeah, I think that, I think I think that's going to be a tough place to get into for a number of reasons. One, uh, because there's a lot of red tape just affecting anything within the hospital. Uh, I'm not sure if barbell medicine and the things that we're preaching, practicing necessarily improve outcomes for the shareholders in different hospitals as the way at, in the United States, the way the health market currently sits. But with that being said, uh, right now there are a handful of CrossFit gyms within hospitals right now. And it, I feel like this CrossFit thing is the closest thing that we have to an opportunity, a real opportunity to like jump off that we could uh, possibly be at right now. So I'm hopeful, yet my expectations are low. But we get to go to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, when yeah, I say get, I mean we, I get to pay for it. But Austin and I get to have a bro trip to Hawaii. <laughs> so we're gonna, see, we're gonna see how this works out. I, I'm hopeful for that. And uh, again, I, I cannot overstate this, that you guys are all very, very important to this whole movement. Every person that you talk to about this, every person that you communicate some element of this material to, even if you don't say the name barbell medicine or whatever, that's still very, very helpful. And that's helping us achieve our overall aims to uh, improve this sort of lifestyle change that can overall affect health. That, that's our thing. That's why we're wide. We're not narrow casting. We're doing the opposite. We want to include as many people as possible. And so that's why you guys are all super, super important. We can't do this on our own. That's Yeah, I think that the barriers in the hospital setting are much greater than in the non hospital setting, at least right now, even though I could collect, I could craft a pretty good argument for this stuff in hospitals, but then I'm telling the hospital, Hey, you want to resist, you need to resistance. There's evidence. There's, I, I cited a paper in our article about resistance training during an acute COPD exacerbation in inpatients, improving outcomes, shortening hospital length of stay, things like that. But what that implies is, Hey, you hospital, you need to hire more PTs so they can go to the acute care floor and spend more time with the patients training them. The hospital's like, why do I care about that? I don't have evidence this is going to reduce my overall costs and I have to spend money now to hire all these new PTs. And so there's tons of barriers from that perspective. So hospital setting is very difficult, maybe way down the line. Um, but for sure, I agree. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be the BBM hospitalist. That's fine. There you go. But uh, yeah, I think, I think in the real world, you guys are super important. And uh, you, know, you guys have now have the potential, for example, with some of the things that I talked about. You can go and you know somebody who's in, who's in pain and you can literally alter the course of their entire life if you introduce them to the things that they need to know. Which yep. would make my day. Yep. If I heard about that. So. Social change agents. Yep. Hashtag PFA. <laughs> it's a great question. The question is for general health outcomes, do we have a preferred template uh, based on what we presented in the seminar? Uh, my default would be the three or four day hypertrophy template, probably, because it's more generalized in, uh, as far as its approach, meaning that I'm not trying to specifically improve your 1RM in a squat, bench, deadlift, press, more than anything else. It's got a significant conditioning component. The volume does tend to uh, correlate, or sorry, a change as we would theoretically expect it to need to change over time. 
um, and it is not hyper-specialized. Uh, that's probably how I would have, if, if someone was not a rote novice, that's probably how I would have them train. You could also do a lot worse uh, than choosing the bridge. You know, again, fairly general, volume is appropriate, conditioning in there. Um, I think the hypertrophy three or four day template would probably be my go-to on that. Yeah. Minus the errors, of course. Oh, sick. That's fine. Yeah, the question is, uh, what do we think about the evidence or uh, about genetic potential, uh, genetics influencing strength potential, and how do we see our own training? That, what was the end of that? In 30 years. Oh, in 30 years. Oh, 30 years? Ah, I'll probably still be alive. All right. I think that there are a myriad of genetic determinants for your strength potential that influence your entire strength training career, meaning your initial response and how you continue to respond and your work ethic and your ability to stick with. I think there are a lot of genetical, genetic components to that. So... So much so that I think when you see people who have, yeah, been a competitive powerlifter, bodybuilder, Olympic weightlifter, strongman competitor, CrossFit or whatever for the last 10 years and I'm at a high level, these folks have self-selected, you've selected rather for the highest level genetic contributors to performance in that specific aim. If they weren't very good at the thing, the odds of them sticking with it and then demonstrating elite level performance pretty low. Also just the resilience to the training load, not because, you know, there's a genetic component to uh, uh, injury potential, potentially. So I think there's a lot of genetic inputs there. That being said, I don't think that strength training is contraindicated by any genetic sort of uh, uh, combination that doesn't produce a medical condition that would render you unable to train. Meaning that even if you're a low responder to training, you're way on the left of this training resistance, you know, athletic spectrum, anabolic resistance scale. You should still train. Just the dose is going to be different and the prescription might be different and your outcomes are going to be less than somebody super sensitive to it and respond super well. That's how life is, right? And everything, things are unfair. As far as my training in 30 years, uh, I don't expect to be stronger than I am right now. I expect to be not as strong as I am right now. <laughs> but I still expect to be training. I also expect to have more insight, more perspective on what things are important to me with respect to training. I'm in this gray zone right now. This gray zone is like, I want to be really strong because that's been my identity for a long time. Like, pulled over 700, I squat over 600, I bench over 400 regularly, I'm a competitive powerlifter, that's me to my core. If you don't like powerlifting, you don't like me. But right now I have no desire to compete in a powerlifting meet. Does that mean I'm not a powerlifter? Well, if I'm not a powerlifter, then what do I do? Who am I? I look in the mirror. That's <laughs> nah, not that serious. But I think, I think 30 years from now I'll have a better perspective on things that are important to me in the gym that are uh, uh, independent from competition. I like, I like competing. I used to race motorcycles at a high level, but I never liked practicing. I only liked racing. I wanted to race every weekend, as many classes as possible, as many days as possible, but I didn't like practicing. I just liked the competition. If you said, hey, do you want to go for a motorcycle ride? The answer is no, unless we're racing there. <laughs> so that's just my 
that's kind of how I want, I'm wired up. So 30 years from now, I expect myself to be competing in something. It's unlikely to be powerlifting unless all the comp rest of the competition is dead and I can win. In which case, maybe I'll be back. But I do think that I'll have a better perspective on the things that are important to me with training. Yeah, I think I'll still be training. Uh, my plan is to be, at that point, stronger than Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also plan to be competing in something. Um, I've competed in some form of sport since I was like five, and I don't foresee that stopping. I don't know if that's going to be powerlifting or... Uh, I mean, when I swam, I did not foresee a day when I would no longer want to compete in swimming. And then I finished swimming, and I'm like, fuck, training for swimming by myself is boring. I don't want to do this anymore. Then I found the bar, and now I do this. So maybe in the future I'll be competing in something else. But yeah, I'll be still be training. Um, and I think even more than looking forward to any particular thing relating to my training in 30 years, I look forward to knowing more things. Oh, yeah. Filling my brain with all kinds of other things. And uh, hopefully we're still teaching and influencing people. And hopefully more people uh, you know, can go around spouting off quotes like, pain is an output of the brain. And uh, things like that. So that Baraki cool. said <laughs> the Baraki yeah. theory. Yeah, yeah. There's already the Feigenbaum constant. I didn't make that up. So yeah, different Feigenbaum. Different guy, apparently. So, I <laughs> <laughs> right, really thank you guys for coming out. Really appreciate it. Thanks. All right, thank you so much for watching the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. Uh, hit like if you dug the video. Make sure you subscribe for all the latest content. If you have your own form checks or your own uh, questions that you want to see answered on our vlog, send us an email, mediabarbellmedicine.com. There's a description below about uh, the requirements for what you need to send. And as always, thanks for watching. Catch you guys next time. For the record.